Hi, everybody. This is Charlie. This is To Hell and Back, the podcast number 37, I think. It's December 12th, 2018. Um, I want to tell you a little story to start. Uh, when I was, I must have been 19 years old, and I came home uh, from the East Coast back to the West Coast where I lived, where my family lived, uh, for Christmas. Uh, came, you know, about this time of year, a week later probably. And uh, and you need to know as a backdrop to this story, I was one of five children, uh, the middle one. Uh, and the way we did Christmas back in those days, because there was a pretty limited budget we were all living on um, in the family, was that um, each year one of the five kids would be designated as the kid that got, quote, the big present for that year, which was a little more costly. And uh, you, we, we would all know that that rotated over a five-year cycle. And uh, the previous year, my one and only sister, the youngest of the five, uh, had received the big present. I don't remember what it was. Um, so there I was at home. I was in the kitchen with my mother, maybe three or four days before Christmas, and she wanted to have a private conversation with me. She won, and what she said was that uh, she wanted to bring up with me, as she had with my brothers, that uh, she and my father wanted to give uh, my sister the big present for the second year in a row. Um, the reason being that she had some boyfriend whose family had invited her to go skiing uh, somewhere, and they were going to go on a trip right after Christmas, like the day after or something like that. And um, she, she had only rented skis or something up to then, so they wanted to give her skis and thought that was really important. And so just wanted to just tell me, and, uh, and, and she, I guess she made the mistake, or I'm, I made the mistake in responding, and, or, or nobody made a mistake, but she said, um, so I just wanted to tell you that, and, you know, kind of like, see, is that all right with you? Saying it in such a way as to assume it would be all right. Well, I was coming back from college, where I had been for one semester, and I think... Um, I probably had a different, I had probably fallen slightly out of the usual family culture. So I actually gave an honest answer. Uh, I said, actually, mom, um, you know, you, it's up to you guys what you do, but I actually think that this has been such a consistent thing we've done for all these years that it's a little unfair. Well, that was all it took to set her off in being really hurt, uh, and crying really loud. And uh, kind of, uh, it was worse than I expected. I think I'm, like I say, I think you fall out of the culture when you've been to college a little bit. And um, and within minutes or minutes, um, my two out of my three brothers came into the kitchen, heard my mom crying, and uh, asked what happened. And she, and she or I said what happened. And then they started yelling at me. And, and criticizing me for what I had done, for coming all the way back from the West Coast and then having the gall to hurt my mother uh, when, when they had already been approached about the same thing and nobody had a big problem with it. And I said, I don't have a big problem with it either. She just asked actually what I thought about it. And I just actually told her. And they said, why don't you go back to college? You know, If this is how it's going to be, maybe we don't want you here. 
was really painful. Um, I had really been looking forward to coming home. So uh, that was a really tough moment. And why do I tell you this story? Emotion regulation can be really strained by the holidays. You know, usual eating patterns go out the window. Sleep can be disrupted. Um, Old, unsettled scores can come back as the family gets back together. Uh, Losses can be remembered around that time, uh, painful losses from the family. Substances can be, and in my family were, a big part of holiday celebrations and in between celebrations for many so people are kind of strung out from that Uh, weather is changing Um, people are getting sick some of the time so there's physical illness Um, in other words there's really quite a gap between what I grew up with as the white Christmas you know of Bing Crosby and home for the holidays of Perry Como and Jingle Bells and ho 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 holidays and how the uh, and all the fun that one expects, and all the I don't know victories that one expects in the holidays, and that all of the Hallmark movies demonstrate, and and yet the fact that so many people's holidays have uh, upsetting incidents and grief and nostalgia that's painful and disappointment with uh, how it goes and with and with what you get in some cases with a- anger, guilt, and hurt feelings, etc. You know. So for us, in the spirit of this podcast, it's a good time to start thinking about how to regulate ourselves and our emotions for the holidays. Um, John Mader is a certified DBT therapist in uh, an area of North Carolina called the Triangle Area. It's these three, uh, it's called the Research Triangle. It includes Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where there's universities like Duke and University of North Carolina and so on. Um, And John has been practicing DBT around there for more than two decades. And he's taught skills there since 1997 to uh, couples and families and groups. Um, He has a website called uh, dbtfamilyskills.com, which is really great. Uh, And he's an expert not only in DBT, but uh, acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion-focused therapy and is a student of Buddhist psychology. And John has created uh, last year, I guess, maybe even before last year, uh, a list of 10 uh, DBT-based antidotes uh, for the pain that can come about with the holidays. I mean, to try to decrease negative emotions during the holidays and increase positive emotions and cope ahead of time by imagining what's going to happen. And it's just this fabulous ten, list of 10 um, antidotes. And uh, I saw it on the DBT listserv recently and was excited about it. And I called John and asked if he would join me uh, and, and we designated next week, December 19th, Wednesday, at 4 o'clock Eastern Time, in, in the usual podcast, to talk with me about those 10 antidotes. Um, and we're going to go through them. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun with it, as well as hopefully provide some help to people who are listening. Um, I realize it's so close to the holidays that some people might not hear it before the holidays, but maybe it'll be helpful anyway, and maybe some people will hustle to uh, either listen to it uh, live uh, 4 o'clock next Wednesday or else within a day or two after that when it gets posted on probably, uh, it'll get posted on my website. Um, The list of 10, uh, along with a worksheet that he created to help people use it, uh, 
um, is something that you can get and download uh, and print out from two places I know of and maybe more. Um, one is his website, uh, dbtfamilyskills.com or from my website, charlieswenson.com. I've put it there for the time being, be- anticipating that this was coming. So, and you might want to print it out before you listen, just because we're, we're going to work our way through the list and talk about it. So, tune in next week uh, on Wednesday, and uh, or go to my website a day or two later to listen to the podcast, and uh, I hope it'll be helpful for some people uh, as they anticipate um, the dark side of the holidays. Today we're going to wrap up my four podcast discussion, it'll turn out to be, of the skills of emotion regulation, the module of emotion regulation. It's podcast, I think, number 37, and um, you could listen to the last three prod- podcasts if you want to uh, get the whole discussion, which, which works through the set of skills for regulating emotions. So I won't go back over everything. I am going to do a little review um, before we jump into the next step. And, and just a caveat for a moment, you know, this module that I'm teaching, uh, the skills that I'm teaching, which I'm really teaching not for DBT people per se, DBT therapists or DBT patients, um, but, and, but people might be tuning in that are those things, but uh, this is for the broader public to have free and easy access to uh, some of the knowledge base of the DBT skills to use them as tools for coping with hell and all of its different forms in life. Now, I just want to say the caveat is um, that, that my uh, podcasts do not cover all the skills in the level of detail that you might want. Uh, there's no way I could do that without taking a lot more hours. Um, so I'm doing usually three or four podcasts per module, and this is four, which I think is the most I've done. And it's probably uh, understandable if you know this module compared to the others. There's so many bits and pieces. There's so many great things in this module for uh, understanding and regulating emotions. So, um, but, but still, even with the four of them, there's lots of things I won't be covering, at least down to the, uh, you know, into the weeds, into the details of some of these skills, which are in the manual. That's one place you can get them, or if you were in a DBT skills group, you would be taking um, not these uh, four podcast hours, but you'd be taking uh, six or seven hours in class in person to go over these skills along with homework in between. So now let me return to the content. Last time, I almost got through the three skills that Linehan has designated for reducing the frequency of negative emotions and kind of uh, realigning your relationship with your negative emotions. One of them is check the facts, one of them is problem solving, and one of them is acting opposite uh, an emotional urge. And they're related to each other in ways that I described in the previous podcast. And I'm going to want to say a couple more things about acting opposite, which is an interesting and complex skill, really valuable. Um, But at this juncture, I just want to step back and give a really brief, fast-running overview of the journey through this module so far. Um, Why? Why do I want to review at all uh, like that? Well, because I said, as I said, it's such a, such a huge, important set of skills, and um, and they and and compared to the other modules, um, there's a lot of different directions in this module about what to do with your emotions. Most of the other modules have a kind of theme or a structure or a template 
that makes them all kind of like easier cognitively to grasp and get the whole picture. This is not just one big picture. There's lots of big pictures in this. So I, I just want to run through it quickly to try to weave them together for you. Um, and yet you, if you haven't listened to the first three, this is probably going to be too hard to get much out of. So um, also, I think I, think I want to do this because as, as much as I've taught about regulating emotions over the last, whatever, 25 plus years, I, uh, I still think emotions are, for most of us, kind of uh, huge, a mystery. They can make life feel great or good at times. They can make life feel terrible at times. They seem to arise sometimes out of nowhere, and, and they seem then to take over everything. Uh, all of our functioning sometimes. They're pretty complex animals made up of so many different things. You know, they're made up of thoughts and, and changes in the brain and changes in our neurobiology throughout our bodies, changes in our hormones, our sensations, our perceptions, changes in our urges of what we want to do, uh, and all kinds of verbal and nonverbal expressions. Um, and so they do, they cause a lot to happen. Um, and they can cause a lot of misery and so they're big deals and so you want to have both an in the weeds tree by tree grasp of this and also a grasp of the overall forest what are these things emotions what are they supposed to do well you know that's what i want to say for a minute emotions are um as best as i can understand at this point and i don't mean me this is comes from other people but my interpretation of what people say and even the uh, research on emotions right now is that emotions really are these um complex multi-component mm, happenings uh, throughout our mind and body and they come immediately in response to some prompting event they come automatically we don't have to deliberate an emotion. Uh, they come uncontrollably in some ways, and they're triggered by something internal or something external, and they come and go as a wave for a few seconds or minutes. Um, if left, you might say, in their natural state, if you, if you let them be as they are, let them come as they are. Let them go when they're ready to go. Uh, they are relatively brief phenomena, but they also can perpetuate themselves and last for hours or days or weeks or months or years. And one of the big tricks uh, that we'll talk about today is how to just let them be. How to just let them be what they're, quote, meant to be. How to let them play the role in our lives that they were meant to play uh, and not perpetuate them and not let them lead us astray. Um, so it's kind of like, how do we allow these pervasive temporary experiences to come and go the way we do with clouds in the sky or patterns of weather or things like that? So what's it mean to regulate emotions? The large picture to regulate emotions means that we're more able to select or to influence what emotions we have, more able to influence when we have them, and more able to influence how we experience them and express them. That's the whole ball of wax. That's the large ball of wax, so to speak. But because they're so quick and pervasive and complex and they're interconnected with everything else in our functioning, there are a multitude of ways to try to 
do this task of regulation. And the way we organize our approach to them in DBT begins like this. We begin by learning what emotions are. Uh, We learn to identify our own emotions, including naming them to the best we can within our language base that, that we've learned. We learn to experience them. Uh, in their complexity, and we learn an understanding, we gain an understanding of of what the functions are that they do for us uh, so that we can remain aware of the value of the emotions if they didn't go awry. And we use a model then for seeing our emotional responses that I went over one or two weeks ago a model of emotions that uh, you might say when we look at our own emotions in a way that we don't usually do because we're always in the middle of them, is we look at them as objective observers like scientists, seeing them with scientific eyes. And by doing that, we break them down into a uh, sequential components, components that interact with each other so that if we do that, we then can see that if we address and change any one of the moving parts of an emotion, that it has the chance of changing the whole thing, including all the other parts. They're all systemically and holistically interrelated. So uh, it gives us many handholds into an emotion, many ways to approach an emotion to try to do something about it. And some will work better than others, and some people will take advantage of different ones more than others. Um, just thinking. So if you go back to um, what I went through when I went home for Christmas that time, uh, there was a prompting event. The prompting event was probably not my mother crying, though that in itself was already an important emotional event, which rendered me vulnerable to the next thing that happened, because it made me begin to feel guilty and feel I had done something wrong. But then I think it was my brother's coming into the room surrounding me and and their verbal attack on me and then it was prompt then it was com- complicated by my own additional self attack in my head that was already sort of going on and now was worse i felt very guilty and ashamed and also i began to attack them in my head in that i was mad at them how dare they treat me that way when i've just come home um and I'm sure every cell of my body was affected. Certainly my brain was affected. My mind was affected. Nervous system was affected. I was very upset, agitated, and I had to get out of there. That was my urge, get the hell out of there, because I might have had an urge to fight my brothers, as we had done when we were younger about things, Um, and I might have had uh, other urges, like to repair to my mother, but I also wasn't purely ready to repair because uh, I thought her response was kind of not was kind of weird, um, so I did get out of there, and I also had an urge to just go back to college. Ugh, the whole emotion catastrophe thing, all at once. So now, let's say I had this DBT model. I could have, while out on a drive, because I did. I took one of the family's cars on a drive, and visited old haunts. I could have stopped along the side of the road and I could have thought about, I could even have diagrammed if I knew this model then. The prompting event, 
the, the vulnerability factors, the things that made me vulnerable to the prompting event. I could have specified some of my thoughts and interpretations of my brother's behavior. I could have identified the changes going on in my body. I could have tuned in to my body, which is more valuable than it sounds like. Uh, tuned into the sensations going on and the perceptions that I had and the changing perceptions because it wasn't a standstill situation in my mind. I could have paid attention and noticed the urge to get away from there and get revenge on my brothers in some way. Uh, or I could have sort of decided how to deal with how I would express this verbally um, and, and also tuned into my own nonverbal expression, my urges and my actions and so on. And I would have had so many ways to approach this whole thing that we call an emotion and to process what was going on in this way, a structured way, and let the emotions happen, go through. I could have maybe just let, if I could have just had confidence in it, I could have thought the, the wisdom of an emotion, I could have just let it go through me let it pass through my body, so to speak. Let it make sense to me and then move on. Instead, I think these emotions got stuck in me. They got complicated. They got exaggerated in me. I kept refiring them by saying things in my head over and over again. That's how we self-perpetuate emotions rather than let them come and go and, and teach us what they need to teach us and get us to do what we need to do. But they got stuck in me. In the next few days, I tried to pretend that this had not happened, sort of a family style. Tried to pretend that they didn't exist. And I got all screwed up by having emotions that I was actually not regulating very well. I was regulating them mainly by suppression and probably in some passive-aggressive ways, as you might call it. And it made that whole holiday visit sort of clouded, covered with darkness, and so disappointing. And I so regretted afterwards saying anything to my mother about the skis. I wished I had just regulated my emotion myself about the skis. And really, in the big picture, of course, that the, the problem, the big problem here was not that they were going to do, do this. It was a perfectly reasonable thing my mother was bringing up. And I, you, she would have thought I was old enough and smart enough and mature enough to handle it. Um, the problem was that that I was trying to use pretty simple means to cope with a pretty complex problem. So all of that is to say the model itself is very important and it opens a lot of doors. In fact, if you understand the model that's diagrammed in the skills manual in handout number five of this module, and it's probably all over the Internet, the emotion regulation model in DBT, if you want to look it up, um, it opens so many doors and the, and, and the rest of the module, all the different skills, in a way could be seen, understood as existing right in there in different components of the model, changing different components. Okay, so after I went through the model, uh, I did teach about checking the facts, about problem solving and acting opposite an urge as three ways to approach painful examples. Um, I want to give you a little, another little example here of, of, a emotional situ of a situation where emotions were not being handled very well um, because it helps with um, seeing just a quick review of this business about acting opposite and uh, problem solving. 
So I can't remember if I've used this example during any of the other podcasts. There's too many podcasts now for me to remember back that far, but if so, it wouldn't hurt for you to hear it again in this context. It's a different context. This is about somebody who was in a day treatment program a long, long time ago. And generally, it seemed that people didn't like her very much. Generally, it seemed that the other um, day program participants uh, resented her. She felt that. I saw her in therapy. She felt disliked. She felt ashamed of that. She didn't know what to do about it. She just wanted friends. And she kept trying and she kept being disappointed and it happened in her life before. So we decided to check the facts. We decided to find out if her feelings of hurt and her feelings of shame were justified by the facts, by the objective situation, or were these just her own, I don't know, exaggeration and misunderstanding, and and this wasn't really driven by objective reality. So what did we do? We did it by reviewing encounters. uh, Factually, what did people say to her? What did people not say to her? How did people act towards her? And it mostly came down to how this took place in groups. And she felt kind of shunned in between groups. But during groups, she felt that people would just be turned off and they wouldn't respond to things that she said, which would then be very hurtful for her. And we decided the other way to check the facts, because we didn't want to go start to interview patients and say, hey, do you like me? Um, or what's the problem? So, But we did decide it would be safe enough and fair enough to interview a couple of the staff members that ran groups that she was in with other patients. Turns out that as best we could determine, the emotions were quite justified, that people didn't like her, people did shun her, people did resent her, and especially people... The group leaders felt that people thought that she was kind of self-centered. And my impression was that the group leaders kind of thought the same thing. In other words, she would turn the conversation towards herself a lot uh, when she did speak. And then people would roll their eyes and, and, and check out of the conversation. So we decided painfully that she might be doing something that caused their resentment, which is, would justify their resentment, and then it would cause her to be ashamed and and guilty and and feel hurt. And so that would be justified. And and, and so we reviewed how she behaved. We figured out the problem, I think. And we decided, you know, if if it's justified by the facts, then in this model, that turns you towards problem-solving the facts rather than acting opposite the emotion. So the emotion is being hurt and being ashamed. Um, and and being and then being anxious in groups, and so we had to get down into detail about what, how did she act under the pressure of her anxiety in groups, her desire to belong, her desire to join the group, her desire to not turn people off, and it turned out what she would do were things that actually created the problem even worse. So to solve the problem, we had to see that what she was doing was she'd get in a group and then when there was a, a, a something, somebody would say something that she could relate to at all, she would jump in then and speak and tell her version of what was being talked about. And then people would get quickly turned off because somehow the way she did it would turn them off and make them feel she was stealing the spotlight. In fact, 
She had no interest in st- stealing the spotlight. She had interest in joining the group, but she was not skillful about it. And she was under the pressure of a lot of anxiety. And then when people didn't respond to her, what she would first say, she would then um, keep talking because she understandably had the fear that if she stopped talking, they would not respond. And whatever she had said would just go into the black hole of social reality and she wouldn't be uh, accepted at all. And so she thought, oh my God, and then she would keep going and that would make it worse, right? So once we identified, once we assessed the problem and then we thought, okay, to change this feelings that she has, we have to change how people see her. To change how people see her, she's going to have to change how she behaves in a group. And so she, we agreed that she would now go in a group, and when she was in the groups, uh, she would try to relate to something that somebody was saying. She would say one or two sentences, and then she would stop and say something like, you know what I mean? But really stop, which required her biting her tongue and having discipline and tolerating anxiety. She had to act opposite the urge to talk in order to problem solve the situation. So you can see how it gets a little complicated, but both skills are really valuable here. Assessment, problem solving strategy, and in this case, the problem solving strategy meant that she needed to act opposite the urge to continue to talk. And in fact, within about a week or two, I was hearing from the staff members that ran the group saying, wow, what did you guys do? She's actually, you know, getting a lot more with it with people in the group. And it was already working out a little better because she was inherently a reasonably likable person, kind of interesting. So a couple more things to highlight about acting opposite the urge. Um, Remember that one of the, um, well, let me just quickly make the points because I'm going to run out of time eventually here. is very important in understanding acting opposite the urge. Remember, if you have an, let's say you have fear, and you figure out the fear is not justified by external reality. It's basically invading you from your past. In order to cope with that in a way that changes your fear, uh, rather than just run away, which keeps reinforcing the fear, the idea is to act opposite the urge. So it would mean to approach that thing you're afraid of, which could be really hard to do. It's like public speaking anxiety. It means you have to do public speaking. And while you do it, you have to feel the fear of public speaking while you do it and still not fall on the ground and, and then find out that actually you can get through it and whether you gave a great talk or not, actually it went okay and no disaster happened. So um, that's the idea. But I want to make clear to you that the idea is not to suppress the emotion. Acting opposite the urge that's associated with an emotion is not in order to suppress, bury, or smother the emotion and put a mask on. It's actually to shift your emotion. So you shouldn't seem like you're a person who is afraid but suppressing it that actually perpetuates it. You want to actually shift from fear to a different feeling. And if you can do that again and again, fear will go down because you'll find fear is not necessary and fear is not justified. 
And so you want to generate a different feeling. And actually, you can start to move towards generating a feeling that includes some freedom and maybe even some enjoyment, uh, but at least uh, something, something more relaxed than anxiety. Okay? All right. I want to move on um, to the next skills skill set here, which is about making yourself less vulnerable to negative emotions. These are skills, um, I've referred to them before in the podcasts, but we've never gone over them, that are intended to increase your resilience as a durable vehicle for your emotions. To do what I was saying earlier, to let your emotions have their day in court. Um, Let them come and go. Let them ride through you. Or to say it the other way, to reduce your vulnerability to getting stuck in negative emotion mind. You know, in a metaphor I gave one or two times ago, these are the skills that strengthen the garden hose so that the water of painful emotions can flow through it without having to be diverted or blocked or stopped or exaggerated. Essentially, these skills are skills that help us live day in and day out with whatever emotions come our way. And if we can get to the point where we can allow our emotions to come and go, negative emotions, positive emotions, and really observe and notice all of them mindfully, actually it creates this sense of freedom because what traps us in our emotional lives is when we don't think we can bear our emotions and we block them or we move on to something else or we go to action right away or reaction and then we never actually just figure out that actually if we just hang out there with those emotions, they can come and they can go and they can serve their purpose and be gone and we can gradually heal our early life emotional jam-ups. There are essentially eight such skills for these and of course they're listed uh, in the form of an, ac- an, of an, an, an acronym. <laughs> in this case, the acronym is the following. A, B, C, please. The word please. So let's go through them. These are antidotes to negativity, uh, antidotes to passivity. They're a- antidotes to being unprepared for emotional situations. And they're antidotes to poor physical self-care. So A, B, C starts with A, and that is to accumulate positive emotions. Now, it turns out the frequent presence of positive emotions is a hugely good thing. Now, of course, we would guess that, but specifically, they help to reinforce us in building our lives. When we feel more positive, when we get reinforcement for things that we do, we're more likely to keep doing them, we're more likely to be motivated. So having repeated positive emotions is a motivating phenomenon, and it's a a good thing for that. They make life enjoyable, which, of course, is a good thing. And they tend to reduce the intensity of or the level of reactivity of our negative emotions. You know, I've worked with a lot of people who are very depressed. They're overcome with negative emotions. Uh, they, They might, over time, lose the will to get out of bed, to take a shower, to get dressed, to go to work. They lose the will to talk to anybody, to answer the telephone, to visit with anyone, to engage in any activity. Nothing brings pleasure anymore. They're sad. Sometimes they're just frozen. They're beyond sad. And they're often tearful. Um, 
or take people who have nonstop anxiety and rumination. They can't stop worrying about stuff or going over the negative events of the past, which they keep replaying as if by replaying it, it'll change it. To live with depression or to live with anxiety like that is very painful. Um, how does such a person in those positions accumulate positive emotions? Because those are some of the hardest situations to uh, accumulate positives and to help build a wall between themselves uh, and break down a little bit the uh, amount of pain. Well, we have two main approaches in DBT to accumulating positives. And a person, uh, somehow, you have to gain the belief that doing them again and again gives you a chance, step by step, to change your emotional experience and increase your resiliency because it doesn't happen immediately. These, these require doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it, and then you find, oh, you know, and there's a lot of evidence, even with uh, rather severe depression, that uh, these kind of approach, which is uh, under the category of what's called behavioral activation, uh, that it actually is a very powerful and maybe the best evidence-based approach to depression. So first are the short-term solutions. These are the pleasant events, doing things that predictably trigger positive emotions right now. There'll be different things for each person, um, of course, and the list, you know, it would be, you would just want to work with that with yourself to uh, make a list of things that when you're in a bad mood or just as you do it just every day, that you're doing some things that if I'm in a bad emotional state, and I've mentioned one of these before, it's pretty predictable that if I go to a golf driving range and hit golf balls for 20 or 30 minutes, my emotions will improve. It's a positive almost every time. Um, that goes on my list. Others for me are things like taking a warm shower. I usually feel better. Taking a walk with my dogs, I'm usually better. Watch another episode these days of The Americans, which I'm kind of hooked on one of these uh, serial dramas. Uh, if I bake a pie, I've always liked baking. Um, if I listen to certain music and so on. So I have to make myself do these things, If I'm in, a, especially if I'm in a bad mood, because once you're in a bad mood, you really don't feel like doing any of these things. You're depleted of energy. You feel shitty, and you just kind of like stay in your bad mood, and you wait till it goes away. But the idea here is to repeatedly use short-term positive things, things that will trigger positive emotions, uh, and, and, and until actually you can break through a little bit and just make yourself feel a little better. It doesn't have to work fabulous, but it can really help. Maybe for some of you, it's working on fixing the car. Maybe it's building something. Maybe it's listening to certain kinds of music that's your particular kind of music. Maybe engaging in a hobby or fantasizing what you would do if you won the lottery, which I always find is, though I don't buy lottery tickets, but I, I like sitting around with people when they've bought lottery tickets and think, oh, what would we do if we won the lottery? And then, of course, you don't win, but um, you have to just decide it's worth it to get the ticket in order to sit and think about it. Getting some exercise, looking at photographs. You know, in the manual, if you turned to the manual, there's about 220 or so suggestions listed uh, to help people get ideas of what would be short-term positives for them. And so the key to this skill is really to list your own. You can't, and you, it's very hard to make them up on the spot. It's much better if you actually have sort of coped ahead, planned ahead. You know what kind of things can be positives for you, and you're making yourself do it.
You know, there's more to this skill because it's so common to kill off even short-term positive emotions when you're in a bad state. You think it won't last anyway, so why get your hopes up? You think you don't deserve to feel good, so don't even try. You think that if you act like you're feeling better, some people around you are going to assume you're okay, and, and you'll lose the support you've been receiving because people see how unhappy you are. There's lots of reasons that kill off a good state of feeling other than just sort of the natural end of it, because it always will naturally end, like everything. Uh, and so the skill includes being mindful of these traps in your own mind, mindful of the ways in which you end positive experiences. When I teach this in groups, I sometimes try to do a, a little script with each person called the life and death of a positive emotion and have people see what happens to their own positive emotions short term um, and try to help people let the mindful experience of a positive emotion remain until, until it uh, has to fade um, and try to extend it into the future rather than let it die or make it die. You know, but then, on the other hand, it is true that each of the strategies is short-term. It is true that they'll end, and it might require cranking them up again and again, to, and that can be exhausting. So there's the other way also to be used, a longer-term way. And if it works, it's kind of a more reliable way, even though it's, it's sort of indirect. This is to work on goals in your life that are aligned with the values that are important to you and build a life that really matters to you, really works for you, is really worth it to you. And if you do that, if you take disciplined steps, like effortful steps, like try to build this or build that in your life because it actually is one of your goals, and if you begin to succeed at one of your goals that's related to one of your values, um, this is a home run. Then, then it's even if it's hard work to get there, maybe especially if it's hard work to get there. Um, and it might not always be positive making it happen. You set the stage for positive emotions to rain out of the sky on you. You kind of set it up so that better things will happen and you'll accomplish something. Good feelings will come eventually. So you work towards something that matters to you, which requires uh, uh, steps, steps to get there, such as to... Um, figure out what your values are. And there's a lot of values listed in the manual too, but maybe you already know what your values are. Maybe your values are based on friendship, interpersonal things. Maybe they're based on the security or the quality of your life activities uh, or doing things for people that, uh, that really are disadvantaged or whatever it is that you, if you pick things to do that are truly aligned with the values that matter to you, whatever they may be, you're more likely to end up generating positive emotions. And this is a longer-term approach, and it's a more reliable approach over the long run if you can build the life uh, that, that, that rains positive feelings on you uh, just because you're doing the life that's meaningful to you. Um, okay? So let me just see. As part of this, there's, there's sort of some steps and advice about using these long-term approaches. First, um, one example would be to uh, watch for what you're avoiding. Things that right, might matter to you, but they might seem hard, or you might have had failures along the way, or might be disappointing, and so you avoid doing it. 
And so the idea is to start to notice what you're avoiding. You could do it right now. You could turn off this podcast uh, if you're listening to a tape of it and um, and say, what am I avoiding? Um, and then start to move in and, and, and figure out what it is to uh, stop avoiding just because you know it's likely to move towards a better life, something that matters to you that you've been avoiding. Maybe you've been not reaching out to build friendships because it's hard to do that. Uh, maybe you're not reaching out to find where you might volunteer where you would do things that actually are inherently meaningful to you because they fit with your values, but it's just a pain in the ass to go through the process. Um, once uh, when I realized I was avoiding since I was six years old until I was about 40 when I did this, uh, I was afraid of horses uh, because I had been thrown by a horse when I was six when I, I mentioned it in one other podcast, I think, when my brother and I got, got on a horse at my grandfather's farm and uh, I kicked the horse in the flanks because I thought it, that's the way you make a horse go because <laughs> I had seen it on television. And uh, the horse didn't like that and bucked and I, and I got hurt and I didn't ever want to be on a horse. And so when I realized that even though my life doesn't require horseback riding, but it is a value of mine to um, courage is a value of mine. Do things, not avoid things um, like that. Uh, and so I started doing horseback lessons uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, when I was still there, and uh, and and I start I started to get better. Uh, I never got really fully comfortable, but boy, my fear of horses went way down. I must say, and. Um, and I felt proud that I had done it, and I got to where I could ride a, on a horse through the woods with other people, and the horse could jump over these low, low-hanging branches and logs and things. So that was pretty cool, and I never had a terrible thing happen, thank God. Um, so you, you pick a value, you pick goals associated with the value, and then you aim for the first goal. And you figure out the steps to that goal, and you start with the first step. In other words, all of this sounds a bit tedious. When it's something real, it's less tedious. I mean, this sounds tedious because it's just one step removed. But it means taking a step now. I mean, let's say if you've been avoiding reaching out for a certain friend and you know who the person is, think about what would be the first step. Uh, or just to find a friend. Uh, or if you wanted to help, uh, I, I had a patient once who, when we were teaching this skill, decided if you wanted to help victims of war, especially children who encounter unexploded bombs in, and mines in, in situations that had been fields of war, and then they get their arms blown off and they get killed. And, and she learned about dogs that go sniff this, sniff out these mines and make it possible to, uh, to search them out, locate them, uh, and, and then explode them safely so that nobody can get hurt. And uh, she started uh, with from one week to the next, started getting finding out where she could go learn to do this. And it turned out there was a place in Texas she was going to go. So it, she got, and her whole mood changed. The next one, ABCs, build, B is build, build mastery. Oh, God, I just realized I'm not going to finish. There's so many things to tell you. Well, I'll just have to assume there's, there's no deadline on these, so I'll just hope for that the quality of what I'm explaining to you, I hope, is sinking in in a way that makes it worth it. Um, 
So uh, then the ABCs, the B is to build mastery. And this is an antidote to passivity and being stuck. And the thing is about this, with, with, including with your emotions, you get in a rut and you get in patterns of doing nothing that requires more than the most minimal effort. And that pattern now becomes the pattern of your life. You live it for a while, that pattern takes hold and it makes it even seem harder to do the things that are hard to do. Um, and even some things that aren't really hard to do, technically when you do them, now everything seems hard. And yet the evidence-based treatment for depression, which can be the end result of this, is behavioral activation, even if you're doing cognitive therapy, it includes behavioral activation, which means to get yourself to do things, to get yourself to uh, push the envelope a little bit, and your envelope may be wherever it is. I mean, it might be small things, it might be big things, but you want to challenge yourself to just take care of some things. And the idea is essentially every day doing something to build a sense of accomplishment. Uh, do things every day that require a little bit of effort, meaningful effort. Uh, not overwhelming effort, at the edge, though, of what you've been doing so that you are little by little expanding your set of activities uh, or engagements in the world, which also then gradually exposes you to possibilities for small successes. It exposes you to the possibility of pride, and it exposes you to the possibility of getting external positive reinforcement because you go do something, something happens. I have a person that's, you know, didn't do anything for a long time and then she started to volunteer at a uh, place for uh, preparing food for people who have no food, survival type of program. And uh, then it, it, it exposes her to other people and to the experience of giving people food that have no food, which is also saddening, um, but it gets her out of her house. Um, Okay, the third of these three skills, A, B, C, of these three, A, B, C, the C is to cope ahead of time with difficult situations. This is a, uh, a skill that everybody knows in their life, but once, once you realize, okay, this is a skillful thing I can do, just by realizing it's that, and, you're, and it's, it's possible to name it that way, it somehow makes it more accessible and more likely to come to mind. Oh, I'm going to my family's house for Christmas, and I know what's going to happen there with my brother, my sister, my parents. Uh, old scores that are unsettled are going to come up again, uh, or I'm going to be in the same room as people who were abusive to me or maybe even did sexually abuse me, uh, as happened with one a patient of mine a few years ago, and we had to use cope ahead because she really wanted to go home. And so cope ahead really means that you, you do a several kind of uh, step process. Um, you, uh, you kind of preview a situation. Uh, you imagine vividly and in detail how it's going to go and what it is that's going to trigger, why, why you're afraid, why you're anxious, how it's going to trigger negative experiences for you, what could go wrong. You get down to details. You might write it out as a script. And it involves imagining what kinds of approaches, including skills, that you could then use to deal with the situation in a way that's sort of like planned ahead or at least thought of ahead, 
um, so that you are not only imagining the situation and imagining what goes bad about the situation, imagining how that affects you in a negative way with negative emotions, but then you're also imagining the uh, ways to protect yourself proactively, the things to do. Maybe it's going to be a, you're going to plan to be partway through a gathering with some people where you know it's going to be difficult for you, and you plan ahead that partway through it you're actually going to go tell everybody, hey, I have to go get something at the drugstore, and you're going to go take a drive, and you're going to go sit at one of your favorite places and just look and just kind of like think about how things are going. I mean, that would be a planned ahead, a cope ahead strategy, uh, or you're going to avoid letting yourself be in a room alone with a certain person. You're just going to be diligent about that. So uh, once you've imagined all these things and maybe you've written out a COPA head script and then you uh, try to really go through it in your mind, actually go through the script in your mind as it's going to happen and then go through in your mind actually using the skills that you're thinking of using and see how that would go. And you, you do all of this mentally because mental rehearsal actually can change behavior and it can be really powerful. So if you go through this, um, it's really, uh, can be very helpful when the time comes. So that's coping ahead. So between accumulating positive emotions, building mastery and coping ahead, these are all contributing to resiliency. And then there's the please skills. And these are the ones that are more directly taking care of your body, taking care of your biology. Um, these are ones that, uh, that, that address a lot of things that routinely wear down our resilience, that make us more reactive, make us more negatively emotional and incapable. And they're things like poor sleep, uh, poor nutrition, poor self-care of physical illness when we're ill, um, too much use of substances, uh, poor, uh, exercise, I mean, uh, sort of a deficit in how much exercise you do. Because all of these things, if you are sedentary and you sleep poorly and you eat poorly and you don't take care of these things and you use substances, all of which are not that unusual in our culture, you know, it's really a huge drag on resiliency. And you never know what's causing what because these things are sort of slow contributors chronic contributors and they're so hard to, to change i mean these things are are uh, are are such long-term habits that this is a very hard thing to change so really you don't change any one of these things in a day or a week you change them by deciding you're going to target on it you're going to focus on sleep and do everything you can learn about sleep and try it and see if you can affect your sleep and a lot of people can there's a sleep hygiene protocol. I'm not going to go over here out loud because it takes too much time, but I might next time, depending what I decide to do with the time, I mean, the time after I do the thing with John Mader next week. Um, so these are the skills for taking care of our bodies, and their acronym is PLEASE, PLEASE, P-L-E-A-S-E, P-L, take care of your physical illness in a judicious way. E, eat in a way that's nutritious you know, that's balanced, you know, where you're actually putting food in your body that's good for your body. Not too much, not too little. So it, it's sort of like what a nutritionist thinks you should do when you eat mindfully. Um, a, avoid mood-altering substances that make us either more numb or more reactive or a back and forth between numb and reactive and worn out and use medications in a way 
that, that they're prescribed. Um, S, P-L-E-A-S, S, sleep. This is really the long-term work if you have insomnia on getting balanced sleep. Uh, not too much sleep, not too little sleep, uh, not, you know, not too interrupted sleep, or if you don't get sleep uh, good enough during the night, that you ensure that you're going to take a, a nap two or three hours maybe, maybe one hour in the afternoon, that when you put together the nighttime sleep and that, actually you're, you're approaching a normal amount of consolidated sleep, but it's interrupted, so it might be not quite as good, but it can be pretty good. So, um, and there's lots of approaches to sleep. So sleep hygiene protocols, like in the manual or online, you can find all kinds of uh, things you should do and shouldn't do about sleep that I can mention next. I think I will probably talk about next time. So uh, uh, P-L-E-A-S, S is sleep. The final E is exercise. You know, there's so much evidence for this that it's, it almost bears not having to say it, but it bears having to pay attention to it in your own life because it can be quite onerous for some people to get themselves to get exercise. What we're really talking about here is to get in like 20 minutes of exercise four, five, six times a week. Give yourself a day off, two days off. Um, but it can do wonders for emotion regulation if you get exercise and in that 20 minutes, you begin a little bit to push the envelope. You know, you just, you make it a little more brisk. Uh, you work a little harder. Um, but don't make it so onerous as to be uh, punishing and therefore you'll stop doing it. You know, it's so hard about these is that they're parts of very long-term patterns so they don't change easily and, and sleep is a tough one. So what, what, I, what I like to do with people is to suggest that they do an assessment in themselves of these five patterns. Write it down. How's my sleep? How's my eating? How's my exercise? How's my use of substances? How am I at taking care of physical illness? And then um, pick one of the five things uh, so that you don't try to do all at once and then drop it. But pick one thing and do it judiciously. Like, And consult people if you need to. But sometimes you already have enough knowledge. It's just not putting in place. And try to monitor yourself. Keep track of it. That, that self-monitoring can help you do it. Or if you need to do some of these things in a group setting with group support, do it that way. That can sometimes be the motivating factor. Maybe you need one other person that is your check-in person that I would call a, a persistence, a, a, pers a, a discrepancy monitor, person who's helping you monitor the discrepancy between what you're trying to do and what you're actually doing. And just a cheerleader, you know, really for that. So I am going to stop. We've gotten to a certain place here, and we're going to uh, uh, cover the next. Uh, there's, there's one hugely important skill that would have taken a good while to talk about mindfulness of emotions, a uh, huge positive skill. So we'll get to that next time, but not next time. Next time we're going to see, uh, I'm going to have be joined by John Mader, and we're going to talk about antidotes for the holidays, okay? Uh, I hope, to, I hope uh, some of you are tuning in, and uh, hope this was helpful to you. Bye.